Our belief in our future is not as real as our experience of the present. I wonder if you agree with that. Our belief in our future, our belief in tomorrow, what's coming to us as Christian people, that belief is not as real as our experience of today. We believe in today much more than we believe in tomorrow, don't we? Because today is what we can see and touch and taste. It's really real, isn't it? We are living it right now with all our strength of emotions. But the future, tomorrow onwards, is unknown. It is a different world. And I think we tend to be either fearful of the future or forgetful of the future. And today is so often everything. It's my view that as followers of the Lord Jesus, we do not believe in our future half as much as we should. It's not real to us. Now, of course, we know Jesus is coming back. We know that is out there in the future. It's ahead of us. It's something we believe as Christian people. But it is not something that makes a real organizational difference to our everyday lives. Now, if that just seems a little bit unfair, a little bit uh, too much to say, just ask yourself, when was the last time over coffee after a service in church to encourage another believer you gently and lovingly told them to hang in there because one day the Lord Jesus will return. And one day this world will give way to the next world and they will be with Christ forever. I can't remember the last time I've said that to one of you or encouraged one of you. It, it, it feels kind of weird, doesn't it, to say that sort of thing to each other over coffee after church. But look at what we read. Look at what Will read for us. Look at chapter 4, verse 18. Here is a passage all about the return of the Lord. Therefore, encourage one another with these words. Look at chapter 5, verse 11. Therefore, encourage one another because of Christ's return and build one another up just as you are doing. What do we tend to use to encourage one another? Holidays are coming. I don't know what it is. We reach for all sorts of things, don't we? A natural ebb and flow of relationships. But the return of the Lord Jesus Christ, as talked about as naturally over coffee, as the latest thing on Netflix or what's happening at work tomorrow, it, it is a step removed from where we are, isn't it? And I wonder for, for all of us if it is because we are just not very good at waiting. We're just not good at waiting. Waiting. Just waiting. Living without answers. Living with suffering. So hard, isn't it? But waiting is one of the main verbs of the Christian life. It's one of the main things Jesus has handed to us to do. What are the verbs of the Christian life? Just look back at chapter 1, verse 9. Chapter 1, First Thessalonians chapter 1, verse 9. They themselves report concerning us the kind of reception we had among you, and how you turned, first verb, turned to God from idols to serve, second verb, the living and true God, and here's the third one, to wait for his Son from heaven, whom he raised from the dead, Jesus who delivers us from the wrath to come. <laughs> Three verbs of the Christian life, turn, serve, and wait. That is what the Christian life is in a nutshell. Turn from idols, serve God, and wait for his Son. Just wait. What's the Christian life about? 
waiting. So I want this evening to give us three things from chapter 4 verse 13 through to chapter 5 verse 11. I want to give us three things to inform our waiting. One of them, one of them comes from verses 13 to 18, chapter 4 and 2 uh, from chapter 5 verses 1 to 11. Three things that I pray will help us to see our future as really real. This passage that we're looking at this evening is written precisely to bring the future from the future right into our living rooms, right into our diaries, right into our church family, and right into our relationships with one another. And I think these words in front of us do it by making three simple points. Number one, Jesus' return is sure, so be hopeful. Jesus' return is sure, so be hopeful. Number two, Jesus' return will be sudden, so be ready. Jesus' return will be sudden, so be ready. And number three, Jesus' return will be divisive, but be assured. Jesus' return will be divisive, but be assured. So here's the first one. Number one, Jesus' return is sure. (coughs) It is certain, so be hopeful. See, when you look at verses 13 to 18, the key thing there in the background is death, isn't it? And the number one thing that I have seen that changes the way people wait is death. The prospect of our own death or the death of our loved ones. Things, things are totally different when you sit beside the bedside of a dying person. It has to be, doesn't it? All of a sudden... All of life comes into focus. All of life has come down now to these last few moments. These last few hours. The future that seemed so far away is now here. And 1 Thessalonians knows when that happens, there are two ways to grieve. There is grieving without hope, which I think is perhaps the most desolate experience on earth, isn't it? Grief without hope. And there is grieving with hope. And what makes the difference between those two things is is overcoming ignorance about where our loved ones are if they belong to Christ. See that in verse 13? We do not want you to be ignorant, uninformed brothers, about those who are asleep, so that you may not grieve as others do who have no hope. Notice when Paul is saying he doesn't want us to grieve as others do who have no hope, he's not saying he doesn't want us to grieve. That is not the meaning of verse 13. I don't know if you've ever encountered this. I've seen this. Some, some believers sadly take a verse like this to extreme limits. They say that the funeral service for such and such a person is going to be a time to be happy. They want you to come and to celebrate joyfully. Okay, we... Because of verses like this, people, people seem to assume that somehow when we lose people, because we're Christians, we shouldn't grieve at all. No, mourning is natural. Mourning is the very sign of the depth of love we have enjoyed. Mourning is emotionally necessary. All humanity grieves, but not all humanity grieves with hope. So what is the thing that makes the difference? What would you say it is as you look at those verses? What makes the difference? Grief without hope, grief with hope. What is it? Verse 14. An empty tomb. An empty tomb. That's the key, isn't it? 
An empty tomb, that's what burst death open and drew death's sting and broke death's grip on our world. The empty tomb of the Lord Jesus Christ. Since we believe, verse 14, since we believe that Jesus died and rose again. And so just follow the shape of the hope in what Paul is saying in verse 14. How can we be sure? Because he did that. And so those who die in him will copy him. They will die and rise. That's the logic, isn't it, of verse 14? And isn't it true here, it was beautifully reflected in what we just sang, one of the hymns just before uh, the sermon. Isn't it true that Paul is actually here giving a kind of prominence to people who die first? Those still alive on earth when Jesus comes back will not precede, verse 15, will not precede those who have fallen asleep. They will rise first. There is a kind of honor, a kind of glory. If you like, there's a kind of special privilege. We do that, don't we? We say, ladies first, or you first, somebody before me. Paul is saying the people who have died first in Christ have a kind of special honor. Being dead is not a disadvantage in the Christian future. And I think these verses point, don't they, to a kind of reunion, something that's very precious to us. Jesus, when he returns, will bring with him, verse 14, will bring with him those who have fallen asleep. Verse 17, we who are left will be caught up together with them. I think this is the beauty of the gospel for believers who die in the Lord. There is the immense comfort of reunion, immense comfort of being with Jesus and their loved ones. Oh friends, may God help us to live in this hope when sorrow strikes. Angela and I watched uh, this week the documentary on Channel 4 of uh, the terrible events. About 20 years ago, Michael Barrymore, did any of you see that? The events of uh, a terrible incident that happened in his home. A young man uh, died, found dead in a swimming pool. And the, the, the whole documentary was basically about what happened that night. Nobody knows this man is found dead the next morning. Nobody has admitted responsibility. Nobody has owned up. And despite their best efforts, the police, police have not been able to bring anybody to justice. Here's a celebrity, Michael Barrymore. Was he involved? Was he not involved? Nearly 20 years ago, and the most awful part of that program was watching a father cope with grief. And grief without any hope. Fighting for justice for his son, but really fighting a losing battle, it seems. What is there to encourage him? It was so desolate. And Paul is saying here, the resurrection of Jesus is everything. The resurrection of Jesus is everything, verse 14. Friends, if the Lord Jesus was not raised from the dead, if his bones to this day are in a tomb somewhere in the Middle East, let us pack this whole show up and go home. Cancel your pledge to the building project. There is no point to any of this. We live, don't we, and love each other so deeply that it hurts so much when we lose those we love. Only if we can take our grief to a place where death already lies dead is there any hope. Only Christ's empty tomb can speak to broken hearts. 
If that is not true, then we are of all people the most to be despised. I wonder if you call that beautiful language in verse 16. Do you remember last week uh, when we were looking at Paul on the uh, Damascus Road? He discovers that when you touch Christ's people, you touch Christ. Why are you persecuting me? And I said that that was the point from then on. Paul discovered these two little words, in Christ, that really just color everything he ever writes. And here it is in verse 16. The dead in Christ will rise first. In Christ. When I was uh, putting this sermon together, I was thinking of Mary Allen at home this evening, young Mary Allen, at home with the twins, carrying the the precious cargo that she has. Those twins are, where are they? In her. And where Mary goes, they go, much to her discomfort at the minute. Where she goes, they go. In our family, we tell two of our children that they have both been to Australia, one of them out of the womb and one of them in the womb. And they both have no memory of it, but both of them went there. It was real. That is what it means to be in Christ. Where he goes, we go. He died and rose again, and so we will die and rise again. Every time you see a pregnant woman, remember that. It is as real as that. We are in him, united to him, joined to him. So number one, friends, Jesus' return is sure. As sure as his resurrection. So be hopeful. Number two, chapter five, Jesus' return will be sudden. Jesus' return will be sudden, so we need to be ready. Look at five, verse one. Now concerning the times... And the season, brothers, you have no need to have anything written to you, for you yourselves are fully aware that the day of the Lord will come like a thief in the night. See, the only thing we know about the when of Christ's coming is that we don't know when. That's the only thing we know about the when. We don't know it. Now, you may know people have have been predicting the time and the date of Christ's return for 2,000 years. You only need a quick search on Google to find a really weird and wonderful list of people who have predicted that the world would end. I wouldn't recommend it. You can be there for hours. It's a really, a really wacky world. People have predicted he's going to come on such and such a date and such and such a time. There's all sorts of reasons. And, of course, it's all nonsense, isn't it? Jesus himself said, Matthew 24, we simply do not know on what day or in which hour the end will come. We haven't got a clue. And to illustrate it, Paul gives us an illustration. I don't need to come up with one. Chapter 5, verse 2. A burglar turns up without any warning, no calling card. See, imagine coming downstairs on a Saturday morning, you pick up your post and there's a postcard there that says... Morning, hello, you don't know me, but I know you, I've been watching, I'm a thief, and I'd like to let you know that I'm coming on Monday night at 3.30am, so if you could just unplug your TV and video, leave your iPhone and wallet on the mantelpiece, and that will make things a lot easier for everybody. See you soon. 
being burgled is the exact opposite of that, isn't it? What, what anybody who has ever been burgled will tell you, the main thing that they experience is shock. The total shock of it. It takes you completely by surprise, right out of the blue. What makes it so upsetting is you realize somebody must have been watching you. Looking at your schedule, looking at your house, working out when you're away, when to strike. The, the robbery was coming for days or weeks and you knew nothing at all about it. That's what unsettles people. And Paul says when the Lord Jesus comes back it will be to a world happily sleeping away and it will be absolutely the last thing they expect. And it's not just that Christ's return will be unpredictable with no warning. You see the, the second illustration, verse 3, that Paul gives us? Not just unpredictable with no warning, it is also inevitable with no escape. While people are saying there is peace and security, then sudden destruction will come upon them as labor pains come upon a pregnant woman, and they will not escape. As long as there is a child inside a woman's womb, then what is certain is that it has to come out, has to find a way out. And as many mothers will tell you, the moment that the body and the baby decides now is the moment to arrive can come very suddenly indeed. But although you don't know when it's coming, you know that it will come. And yet, of course, here, when you look at this, the whole point of Paul using these two images, verses 2 and 3, the thief and the pregnant woman, the whole point is to remind the Thessalonians that they actually are in the know. See at verse 2, you yourselves are fully aware that the day of the Lord will come like a thief in the night. You are fully aware that it will come like labor pains upon a pregnant woman. If you are a believer and if you have the Bible in front of you, it's a bit like you do have the postcard from the thief saying they're coming. The surprise has been taken away. And a Christian person looks at the world in the same way that anybody else looks at a heavily pregnant woman. Ah, we say, we, we know what's coming. We know what's going to happen. We just don't know when exactly, but we know what's coming. Now I think this is a, a really helpful, a really helpful thing if you, if you stop and think about it in the Bible, that God has not given us a date. Isn't it helpful? Imagine what it would be like if we knew that Jesus was coming back on the 28th of February 2022. That was the fixed date and we knew it was happening then. Now, initially, we might think that would be a helpful thing, wouldn't it? It would tie up a lot of loose ends. We think we, we'd know exactly what we're working with. But actually, what effect would that have on our readiness? <coughs> I don't know what you're like. If I have a deadline for something that is four years away, do I get started on it now, tomorrow? Maybe some of you do, but most of us don't, do we? If the school knows that the Ofsted inspectors aren't going to be in for three years, are they in a constant state of readiness every single day waiting for them? No, of course not. See, deadlines and dates don't actually help us. What they tend to precipitate is a last-minute crisis of getting ready. And spiritually, that is not what God wants. He does not want us to be last-minute-only believers. He doesn't want us to be ready only for a future date. He wants us to love him 
now. He wants us to be ready for Jesus today and always. And so the Bible says, that return, all you need to know is it will be sudden. So be ready. If a thief is coming, someone somehow has given you advance notice, you lock the door, you charge your mobile so you can ring the police. If your wife is pregnant, you make sure there is fuel in the car. Your grasp of the future, what you know is coming, radically impacts what you do in the present. So look again here at just how Paul applies this surprising but certain future to the Christian. Look what he says, verse 5. You are all children of light. Children of the day. We are not of the night or of the darkness where all these surprising things happen. So then let us not sleep as others do, but let us keep awake and be sober. For those who sleep, sleep at night, and those who get drunk are drunk at night. But since we belong to the day, let us be sober, having put on the breastplate of faith and love and for a helmet the hope of salvation. Notice how the the imagery is different here. For the non-Christian world, the imagery used to describe the return of Jesus is a thief and a pregnant woman. But what's the image for the believer? A soldier. For the Christian, it's a soldier. Because they know what's coming, what are they like? Slouching in the corner? No, they've put on faith and love like a breastplate. They've buckled it on. They've got ready for action. They've put on hope like a helmet. It's a very simple contrast here, isn't it, between the sluggard and the soldier. The soldier is awake, alert, watching, ready. He's in the dark. The the sluggard, sorry, is in the dark. The opposite, he's asleep. One state describes the person ready for the future. The other describes somebody oblivious to what's coming. Who do you want to defend you in the face of a future threat? Do you want a sluggard or a soldier? Someone prepared and ready or someone who says... Don't worry, I'm sure it'll all be fine. Let's just have another drink. Let's relax. Paul says, just like that soldier standing ready for action, so the Christian believer needs to be ready for the return of Christ. Only the unprepared are surprised by the unexpected. Don't be caught out. Now, I think when you look at these verses, this passage actually has built into it the most wonderful application for us as we think about I think the big question is, what does it look like then to be ready for Christ returning? What does it actually look like? I I grew up in a Christian environment where actually, one reason or another, actually there was quite a lot of talk about being ready for Jesus coming back. And it it often meant something like this, look, Jesus might come back tomorrow, so would you really want him to find you in the cinema when he comes back? Would you really want Jesus to find you watching TV or out with your friends, out with that group of friends? In other words, Jesus' sudden return was actually a kind of threat, even for Christian people, a kind of threat to keep you being good. And I think as a a very little boy, I used to think the only way to be safe when Jesus came back was to be dressed in your pajamas, your hair neatly combed, to be sitting on the end of your bed reading your Bible. And if you were doing that, then all would be well. But pretty much everything else could be risky. Doesn't this passage change that, thankfully, for all of us? Doesn't it paint alertness, readiness, sober-mindedness, self-control? Doesn't it explain all those things in really positive terms? Look again at verse 8. Let us be sober, having put on the breastplate of faith, love, 
and the helmet of hope. See, the, the ready Christian is the Christian whose whole life is so gripped by her faith in Christ that she is hard at work for other Christians. The ready Christian is the Christian with the sore back and the dirty hands and knees because they're helping that other believer. They're, they're overflowing in love to the church family. They're helping that believer with the leaking pipe because they love them. The ready Christian is the one enduring through tremendous loss and heartache because they know that Jesus is waiting to receive them. The ready Christian is not locked away in a little room somewhere, staring at the clock, trying to be good. They are out there in the world living with faith, hope, love. Being alert, being ready is ordinary. If we're living every day for Christ, trusting his word, believing his promises, loving the lost, serving his people, then we're ready. And doing some of those things might mean you're in the cinema with your friends. It will certainly mean you're around a a meal table with people or on the phone or inviting someone to church. Taking the opportunities, whether with Christians or with non-Christians, taking the opportunities wherever God gives them to you to say to people, this world is not all there is. There is a king and one day he will return. Some people are very good, aren't they, at living like this, just taking every opportunity. I told you a couple of weeks ago, a couple of weeks ago about the Christian businessman, the millionaire John Lang, uh, who I've read about recently, and a wonderful Christian man. I I heard this story that uh, when he was about to receive his CBE, he was waiting in line, uh, his CBE from the Queen, waiting in line to get his, uh, his honor, and he just turned to the man beside him, just as they're about to go up to the Queen, and he said, I have been thinking, what will it be like when we assemble before the throne of the Lord Jesus Christ? What will we be thinking and do you hope to be there? Now I think there are all sorts of ways for us to do that sort of thing, to live in the light of Christ's return. This man who died at Michael Barrymore's house, Stuart Lubbock, if you watch that program and see his father the only thing that has kept his father a broken man going is a deep deep longing for justice and that longing for justice is all around us you see that in the me too movement you see it in your friends you see it in the media in the news and every possible way the number one hot button hot button issue of our day is justice And the return of Christ is a wonderful link to that connection that everybody wants and everybody feels. There is only one way we can be sure of justice in this world. It is to have a perfect king. A perfect king who will return. Jesus' return will be sudden, so be ready. I just want to finish with this very briefly. Number three, Jesus' return will be divisive. But be assured, Jesus' return will be divisive. I wonder if you noticed through chapter 5, 1 to 11, there is a clear line of division running right through that passage, isn't there? It is a them and us line. Just look at it with me. Verse 3, while people are saying there is peace and security, and then contrast with verse 4, but you. Verse 6, let us not be asleep. As others do, but let us keep awake. Those who sleep, sleep at night. But verse 8, but since we belong to the day, 
And so the whole way through these verses, there are these pairs of contrasts, aren't there? Light on the one hand and darkness on the other hand. Day and night, awake and asleep, sober and drunk. And one set of terms describes the believer and the other terms describes the unbeliever. And friends, that line actually in our world is the only division that counts. That is the only way to segregate people, the only line we should ever draw through the world. It's not a division that our world knows about or cares about. But actually you either belong to Christ, and so you belong to the day and the light and you're awake, or you don't belong to Christ and you belong to the night and the darkness and you're asleep. The only two ways to live. It's a radically different way of viewing the world, isn't it? See, look around this room any given Sunday. Why are we such an odd bunch of people in the church? It's because we're made up from all different walks of life. It's because all the ways that the world gets together don't apply here. Any church family is rich, poor, educated, uneducated, old, young, weak, strong. All the things that tend to divide the world from each other the church contains them all together and puts them all together in one room because the only division we know is between people who are waiting for Jesus and people who are living for today. That is the only division we know. It is a radically different dividing line, isn't it? And it's actually so radically different because it is the future which divides the present. It is it's the future that divides the present. Look at verse 9. For God has not destined us for wrath, but to obtain salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ. See, if you belong to Jesus and belong to the light and the day, it's because God has destined us to receive salvation that on that last great day we will be welcomed into heaven. And that future reality makes us what we are now. And if you don't belong to Christ then the really sobering truth in the Bible is that there is ahead of you the day of God's wrath. A day that the Bible describes as so terrible that people will cry out for the mountains and rocks to fall on them, to shield them from the wrath of the Lamb, from the anger of Jesus. Jesus' return, when it happens, will be divisive. But it will be the final confirmation, if you like, it will be the sealing of that dividing line that already runs through the world right now. And the Bible says there is a line drawn from the future all the way down into the present. And because of that line, we either belong to Christ or we don't. Jesus' return is sure, it will be sudden. And it will be divisive. Well, I hope you don't mind me saying, as we close, I hope, I hope I can encourage you better from here on over coffee. I hope you can hear me say more constructive things. And you to me and us to each other, there are often heavy hearts, aren't there, here among us. There are nearly always weak knees among us. And we find so many quick and easy temporal ways of encouraging each other. But I'm going to try from here on saying this to you. Keep waiting. Keep waiting. Nobody waits for anything anymore, do they? We grow up with everything we want as soon as we want it. Everything is instant. 
and you come to church and you learn to press slow motion on the clock of life. Wait, wait. How can I help you wait? That's how we encourage. Just a few weeks ago I saw somebody after church sitting quietly praying with somebody else after church and it encouraged me no end. I thought that is exactly 1 Thessalonians, encouraging another brother, a sister. Take hold of God and wait. So may God help us. Amen.